when I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, visit betterhelp.com slash stuff today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash stuff. Hey, everybody. I want to talk to you for a second here about Canva, specifically Canva presentations that are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation. So start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. Just go to canva, C-A-N-V-A dot com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's lingering, too. She's a lurker, and this is Stuff You Should Know, the education edition. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this after learning more about it. Yeah, this is your pick. Where'd you come up with this? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's good. I was I was hoping that it wasn't like, well, I had a really bad experience with a teacher when I was a kid. No, I had always good experiences generally, but now I'm worried that it was a uh, a listener because I've gotten a few of those lately. Like, hey, when you said you didn't know, it was me. <laughs> oh, no. I usually make a note, but... Uh, sure, sure. I don't know. Well, if you suggested the Pygmalion effect... You're probably the only one, and you can feel free to email and be like, hey. Sorry. And you said you didn't know. It was me. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking about the Pygmalion effect, and it does have to do with education. But it has to do with, you know, more than that, too. Um, and for those of you who don't know, uh, the Pygmalion effect is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. It's called an expectancy bias, I believe. And it basically says, in effect, that if you um, – have high expectations for, say, a student or an employee or something, they're likely to perform better than other people. And it has something to do in all sorts of different ways, it turns out, from that that relationship, that high expectation. And it's pretty neat if you think about it. Um, and Pygmalion, it's named after, um, I guess, a Ovid metamorphosis um, story, right? Yeah, I think it was... Um I believe it was a, a statue. Isn't that right? I think Pygmalion was the sculptor and the statue is Galatea. Okay. I knew it from, um, you know, because I'm not the art major. Well, I'm not either. I was the English major. So I read George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion mm-hmm. in college in a class. Uh, and then, of course, the, the My Fair Lady was based on Pygmalion in which uh, I think her name was Liza Doolittle. It was sort of hey, let's take this rough-around-the-edges uh, young woman and, and make her into a fair lady. I knew it as trading places. <laughs> exactly. But, the, you know, sort of a classic story. <laughs> uh, the original play is great, and it all has to do, like you said, with this uh, sort of self, this idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy, which had been around for a long, long time. But in the 1960s, of course, when uh, psychology and doing studies on all kinds of things was really mm-hmm. blossoming and just sort of exploding in all directions. Super hip. That was, well, I don't know about that, but maybe <laughs> in, in those communities. Right. 
But uh, there was a psychologist named Robert Rosenthal who got pretty interested in this idea of how bias can affect something like performance or assumptions or, you know, thinking like, uh, you know, it moved out of the classroom, but initially like, hey, this kid has promise or this kid does it. And then they end up being like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of implications, obviously, of, you know, okay, well, then does that mean that there's kids who are not performing as well as they could because they're not being treated well by their teachers? Like, sure, there's a lot. And I think yeah. one of the things that I like about this is that it, it just how much debate and research and argument has gone into just this one segment yeah. of approaching education really just goes to show how seriously we take education or have at least in the past. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that certainly doesn't mean we figured it out, but no, I, I think people have long studied and tried and argued and debated on the best way to make help kids reach their potential, and that's a good thing. Yeah. So there was a sociologist named Robert Merton, and he turns out to have been the person who coined the term self-fulfilling prophecy. I hope he um, copyrighted it because I owe him some money, just me. <laughs> Anyway, that was back in 1948, and even by then, that was a good almost 50 years after um, experimental data started coming in that showed self-fulfilling prophecies existed. So our, I guess our kind of hero, or at least protagonist, antagonist, I guess it depends on how you look at him, Robert yeah. Rosenthal, um, in the 60s, he hit upon a pretty great um, study idea along with a, a, a colleague of his named Kermit Fode, which is a great name. Yeah. In writing, out loud, blinked out in Morse code. It's a great name all across the board. But working together back in 1963, they took on running rats through mazes, which was already like just so cliche back then that it was like a perfect thing to experiment on because it was like the, the people that they were actually experimenting on, the students who were running the research were the ones who were being experimented on. But the rats and mazes was just so ubiquitous they didn't question that at all. It didn't even occur to them that they would be being experimented on. Yeah, and they ended up coming up what I think should be just these words on a T-shirt and just don't even explain it because what they told experimenters that were working with these rats, they said, all right, you got some really uh, great rats in this group, mm -hmm. and they were bred to be maize bright, but those other ones, they're maize dull. <laughs> right. I just think that would be fun on a T-shirt, but... Um, actually, these rats were assigned randomly, uh, but what they found out was that the dull rats, the maze dull ones, hit their peak performance mm -hmm. uh, three days in and then started to go downhill where these really uh, bred-to-be-maze-bright rats just kept on improving. And so the conclusion was, I think these students are getting these rats that are maze-bright and are just, you know, hey, little buddy, you can do it. I know you got it in you. Sure. You're a smart rat, like they're handling them better, they're talking them up, they're encouraging them, and it's working. Yeah, because, I mean, again, you said that they were assigned randomly, and there was no such thing as maze bright or maze dull rats. They were all just the same. So they had to have something to do with the researchers because there, there was no difference between any of the rats that were assigned. Um, I think in the worst, the worst interpretation is you could also suggest that the um, maze bright rat student uh, experimenters uh -huh. could could even have been fudging the numbers a little bit to meet their expectations, e hey, unconsciously or not. <laughs> but it's a possibility. And sure. actually, that kind of led to one kind of branch of study 
that 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 came out of that maze bright maze dull rat experiment um how much expectancy bias affects researchers in scientific studies that was the first leap that it went to um but shortly after that it ended up in the classroom because um a, a principal of spruce school in elementary in san francisco read about this rat experiment i think it was an american scientist in 1963-ish and uh, the principal, Lenore Jacobson, wrote to Robert Rosenthal and said, hey, um, if you ever want to replace, like, rats and experimenters with students and teachers, I'm your person. And very quickly, Rosenthal took Lenore Jacobson up on that. Yeah, by very quickly, I guess in science terms, a couple of years later. Right. And they said, all right, uh, you know, we don't know it now, but this is going to end up being a very, very famous experiment called the Pygmalion Experiment. Uh, and again, you know, named for the the art and the play and uh, what else was it? Uh, trading Places. Trading Places, that's right. <laughs> I keep wanting to say 48 hours, but that's not it at all. Yeah, but actually tra- uh, that came afterwards, so you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, great movie, though. Which one? Trading Places. I love it. Okay. I've I've never seen 48 hours. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a good one. Okay, so which one's better, Trading Places or 48 Hours? Well, I mean, they're both kind of great. One is just more of a straight-up comedy, which is Trading Places. Sure. Uh, 48 Hours was sort of in that cop buddy movie uh-huh. uh, action thing. Lethal But weapon-ish. also has laughs. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, it's prime Eddie Murphy. Okay. I sound like more of a Trading Spaces person to me. Trading Places. Trading Places. <laughs> That's a HDTV show. Yeah, it totally is. <laughs> So, uh, boy, that was a good sidetrack. Eddie Murphy's got a new Beverly Hills Cop coming out, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's right. I wonder how that's going to be. I wonder, too. I don't feel like he's aging poorly. He doesn't seem to be getting less funny over time, although I haven't seen any of his stuff very recently. We'll see. I haven't either. Okay. I'm reserving my opinion till later. All right. That's fair. All right, so Spruce School, San Francisco, uh, it was performed on these kids, uh, a white majority, Mexican-American minority, but mostly working-class kids. This wasn't some, like, when I first heard Spruce School, I thought it was some, like, super hoity-toity private school. I did, too. Sounds like it. It sure does, doesn't it? Especially in San Francisco. But one more thing very crucially about this school, the kids were grouped by reading ability. So if you weren't a very good reader, you were in a group or a class with other kids who weren't a very good reader and so on and so forth. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot about grouping because it has a lot to it, – it's not a great thing to do, as it turns out, and it's got a lot to do with a lot of this. For sure. So students uh, at the school, they were given a test, and the researchers told these teachers, and as we'll crucially find out too, this test was not given by the researchers. They were given by the teachers, correct? Yes. Uh, so that's going to come into play as well. But they told the teachers, said, all right, we've got these results. You've got some uh, bloomers or, quote, unquote, growth spurters in your class. Mm-hmm. And they're probably just like these uh, maze bright rats. They're like, the, they're going to really improve mm-hmm. over the school year. Just you watch. Uh, we gave him this test. It was the Harvard's test of inflected acquisition. Uh, and it's supposed to assess their potential, mm-hmm. which was not true at all. What they actually took was an IQ test called uh, TOGA, Flanagan's Test of General Ability, and there were some problems with that right off the bat, right, with this toga test. So one thing, Chuck, about that test of inflected acquisition, it didn't exist. They just they made it up so that teachers, if they were possibly familiar with the test of general ability, 
um, they wouldn't be like, wait, this isn't this isn't what you would use to find Grossberger's or Bloomer's. They just made up a test because this was a made up. Um, the results were supposed to be made up too. Again, the the teachers thought that they were administering a test and that the results were real world, but they were being lied to. They were being manipulated in the exact same way those students were told that some of their rats were maze bright or maze dull. Exact same experiment, just with humans now. Yeah, because the idea is to see if teachers think that a kid is supposed to have a growth spurt uh, intellectually, then that will end up being the self-fulfilling prophecy. So these students were uh, chosen at random. Mm -hmm. Uh, The teachers were given that information. And after months and months, they took this test again, the Mm -hmm. TOGA test, at the eight-month mark, uh, the one-year mark, and the two-year mark. Yeah. And so just as Rosenthal predicted in his hypothesis, I should say Rosenthal and Jacobson, um, the principal, the the people who had been or the kids who had been identified as growth spurters or bloomers actually did bloom academically. Yeah. They they gained um, all sorts of uh, IQ points over the course of the eight months and then year and then two years when they took and retook the test. Um, and that even though the effects were mostly pronounced among first and second graders, um, that was enough. That was enough to just kind of show, like, this is a real deal. These kids were no different than the other kids. The only difference was that these bloomers were the ones who were whose teachers were told, keep an eye on them because they're going to be amazing kids. Yeah, and what's interesting is for the, uh, I think, the third, fifth, and sixth graders, they showed that they actually improved at the same rate the bloomers did, the ones who were assigned that tag at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same rate or slightly even slower rate or lower rate than the control group. And the researchers, Rosenthal, basically said, well, that's because when you're younger, your your mind is more malleable. Um, and so that that's probably it. And also um, because the school and these teachers probably, um, you know, think that their reputation wasn't uh, like they, they may have felt bad for these kids who weren't who didn't get the bloomer tag. So they may have. Um, like paid more attention to them or something. Right. Or the younger kids hadn't been at school long enough to establish like, hey, I'm actually not that smart or, hey, I'm actually really bright. So they their their reputation wasn't established. You know, no big man on campus label had been applied yet. Yeah. So if you're starting to sense like, oh, wait a minute, then he just immediately sort of explained away something that didn't agree with his finding. You will see that that uh, kind of becomes part of the story. <laughs> right. So they published a study in 1968 called Pygmalion in the Classroom. And again, they named it after um, Pygmalion because in that story from Ovid, the the, the sculptor Pygmalion um, sculpts a, a beautiful woman, falls in love with her, and um, l- loves the statue so much that the goddess Venus says, I'm going to make you a real live person. So the attention that, that um, Pygmalion paid to Galatea, his statue— created a magical transformation in his statue from statue to human. There was some sort of magical intervention. So it actually is a really great, great name. And I I can't think that that didn't have something to do with how much it exploded onto the scene because it's really difficult to understate what just a bomb this dropped, not just in academia, but in popular culture. It got picked up and talked about for years afterward. That sounds like a great place to break, eh? I thought you might say that. All right. Well, let's take a break and we'll be right back and talk about this explosion of understanding right after this.
This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everybody. It's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website, whether it's an online course or custom merch. Squarespace has you covered. That's right. Courses is a great program. You can start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. That's right. With Fluid Engine, which is a next generation website design system, by the way, it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. And don't forget the commerce side, because after that, you can charge a one time fee or you can even sell a subscription. Yeah. So turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. Hey, everybody. Did you know that Boricua is the name for someone from Puerto Rico? But it's more than just a name. It's a way of life and representation of the vibrant spirit of the island. Yeah, that's right. It's an island that's filled with adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the entire United States. That's right. Or you can get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico that remind you of why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island. It becomes a part of you. That's right. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. All right, so where we left off, uh, the study was called Pygmalion in the Classroom, uh, published in 68 as the paper, and then also, notably, as a full book. Uh, If it was just the paper, it may have just sort of been, you know, passed around through academia. But because it was a book, it became very popular, and all of a sudden, Barbara Walters is interviewing (laughs) Rosenthal, Mm -hmm. and the New York Times Mm -hmm. has got it on the front page. And, you know, like the mainstream media is all over this is, you know, basically saying and, you know, kind of like the media does with something like this. They're not digging into the data like uh, academia will, as we'll see. Right. But they'll run big headlines and they'll say this is really significant because we all knew that uh, the way we teach our kids is wrong. And this kind of proves it. Yeah. So I think that was another reason why it, it had such a huge effect on like the larger culture. 
because people have been suspecting for a while that putting um, kids into groups by, you know, reading ability was a bad idea. It was doing a disservice to them. Now there's this paper that showed demonstrably that that was absolutely true. That was a terrible idea. And yeah, like you said, there were headlines all over the place. People were discussing it. And um, Rosenthal, he he was basically the the ringleader, the the ringmaster to all yeah. this stuff. He was very much on board with not pointing out, oh, actually, you guys are missing a lot of nuance. It's not quite that cut and dry. He was like, yep, absolutely. Like exactly what you're saying, this black and white thing where like, yes, this is absolute proof. I'm totally going to go along with that. And he got criticized just for that alone, um, just not 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 intervening in how his science and findings was being communicated to the larger public, and in fact, kind of playing a role in in making that happen. Um, just kind of capitalizing on the general population's incomprehension of statistical analysis. We don't we don't know what that is or how to do it, so we rely on scientists to explain it to us in terms we can understand, or the press. And um, if the scientist, as we've covered many times, Chuck, uh, isn't forthright or honest, that stuff can get turned into all sorts of misunderstandings or overblown findings. Yeah, and one of the big things, too, that we should point out was that uh, fact that we told you earlier that um, before the break that these tests really kind of showed this effect for these younger kids in first and second grade, but not for the, you know, the kids in the older grades. And in fact, it showed a negative correlation sometimes in some of the older grades. They didn't even put that in the book at all. (laughs) So they're already sort of cherry picking stuff. And the book was the thing that really blew up uh, more so than the paper. And so, of course, the press uh, isn't covering that aspect of it, probably because they didn't even know about it. Yeah. So there's two tracks, the popular press, like the New York times or today show or whatever, they're covering it in glowing terms. Like it's absolute proof of what everybody always suspected. Um, the other track, uh, was a, a, a pretty wide river of criticism coming out of the halls of academia from other psychologists of different stripes, um, who just were teeing off on this paper. And even though it didn't necessarily capture the attention of the larger public, um, in academia, there was a thorough debate that that started right after the paper came out. It went yeah. on for a good decade and actually turned out to be really healthy, um, not just for Rosenthal's paper, Rosenthal and Jacobson's paper, but for, um, in, I guess, statistical analysis as a whole. But um, I think because Rosenthal ended up inadvertently creating the meta-analysis study. Um, but before we get to that, Chuck, let's talk about some of the stuff that was wrong with the paper, statistically speaking. So, yeah, I mean, the TOGA test we should talk about right out of the gate because this test uh, was not supposed to be used on uh, first graders or with kids with an IQ below 60. And that alone probably accounts for, or at least accounts for some of, the fact that these low results were coming in on these kids in the younger grades, and then they would obviously gain much more ground because they then aged into the test by their time they're taking this when they're really supposed to be. Exactly. And <clears throat> there was something that um, that was – Rosenthal, like, responded to that and even said, hey, even if that test doesn't apply uh, to these younger kids, the fact that the same kid is taking the same test over time um, – it really it renders that moot. It's still going to show accurate results. I see uh, what he's saying there, 
but it, it's just moot to me because it wasn't even supposed to be given to a kid that young. Right, but also he's totally full of beans right there. Um, he's So the first initial findings, that first test, produced such totally skewed results that as those kids aged into the test and started getting normal results— and you compared those those later results to the first results, you would see all sorts of crazy gains that were completely incorrect. Like, they just yeah. weren't true. That was a big part of it. That TOGA test was not set up for kids with IQs under 60, which is a big problem because first graders in the United States, on average, had IQs of 58. And so you can see it reflected in some of those results. Like, some kid had an IQ of 18. That's almost impossible. Um, and certainly they wouldn't be like reading at that point. Same with the kid, I think, with uh, 30. And then one of those kids later went from like 30 to like 100, which is coming close to, to maybe even gifted level. Like the results were just terrible. And even worse than that, in the book, as an academic should, they didn't include any of the raw data either. Yeah. So that means, you know, you can't go out – as another researcher and sort of try and replicate that, mm -hmm. uh, it just kind of occurred to me what he was sort of saying with that initial defense was like, uh, you know, you have a broken scale that doesn't say what your true weight is, but you can still, you know, it's still accurate because you can see how much weight you gain or lose by using that same scale. Right. And you're like, yeah, but you still don't know how much somebody weighs. Yes, that's true. But then also the thing that makes him dishonest in that response is that, Imagine it's broken the first time you weigh yourself, and then you fix it, and you you weigh yourself after that. And so those are the right results, but you're comparing them to that first broken result. It's completely useless. Why does anyone even have scales anyway? I don't know. It doesn't make <laughs> any sense. And why, why, for God's sakes, do they keep them at hotels, like at the beach? Oh, I don't know, man. There was one in one of my rooms when we were on tour, and this one was in San Francisco. I'm like, why you throw are it out you the here? window? <laughs> I just glared at it a couple of times, and it eased itself back under the vanity. Oh, uh, I mean, hey, I weigh myself to keep track of things, but for God's sakes, don't I, weigh yourself on vacation. No, I was going to say I do at home, but not not on vacation, not even on tour. Uh, so anyway, scale diversion aside, like you said, he didn't include raw data. That means you can't come along afterward and try and replicate it. So that's right. a big problem. Yeah. Uh, other people uh, chimed in and said uh, things like, I think uh, Richard E. Snow was a psychologist mm -hmm. who said also, you know, apparently teachers couldn't remember. And a lot of them reported that they even didn't really even glance at this list on who was a bloomer or not a bloomer. So it's which is very strange. It sounds like some of these teachers didn't even fully realize or care much that they had an experiment going on. Yeah, I thought that was kind of weird, too, because um, I didn't get the impression that these were anything but, you know, normal, dedicated teachers. But I don't know. Maybe they suspected that this was made up or that this was maybe they, they were like, there's no test that can really pick that up. So I'm not even going to pay attention to that kind of thing. Or Who they knows? were busy teaching. That, that could be it, too, <laughs> for sure. Um, another one was that the teachers themselves administered the tests, the initial tests. Um, so they, they weren't administered by professional child psychologists. They were yeah. administered by teachers who already had an impression of the kids they were administering the tests to because it was the previous year's teachers. So if you were, say, in second grade, your first grade teacher was the one who administered your test. I didn't get that. But that was another criticism from academia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... 
People are debating this. Uh, they're starting to sort of argue positions, you know, for and against over time. Uh, there was a 2018 overview of, of a lot of these debates uh, from someone named Thomas L. Good and Natasha Sturzinger and Allison Levine. And hats off to Livia for, like, getting all these names. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that did a lot of follow-up stuff. So nice job. Yeah. Uh, but um, they noted that the individual the individual students' result, uh, results varied a lot um, on the different post-tests saying, you know, basically, we just don't have a lot of evidence that these IQs really improved at all. Yes. But here's the thing. This is what's astounding of it. I think it was Robert Snow, in his book review of it, wrote that it's possible that the Pygmalion in the in the classroom, like, study, yeah. actually did turn up evidence of, you know, this this idea that we've all considered, you know, for a long time as possible that teachers' expectations affect student performance. Right. But if if it did, it did it by accident because right. he was just saying, like, the study was so poorly executed. Um, and it, it seems like Robert Snow was correct in that that um, guess that somehow, some way, this study did show this is a real thing. And over time, from this 10-year-long debate over the results and the methodology and all that stuff. And hats off to Rosenthal. He didn't just, like, he didn't just like throw the study out and run off with a big right. bag of money with a dollar sign on it. Right. <laughs> um, he stood there and he, he answered his critics. He, had to, he engaged in the debate for a good decade. Yeah. And over the course of that decade, more studies with better methodology uh, and better execution were, um, it, were created and, and studied the same effect, this Pygmalion effect. And they found, nope, he was right. Whether it was a bad study or not, this is, it produced some sort of correct results that, that we do realize now the Pygmalion effect does have, it, it is real to some degree. Yeah, and depending on who you were, you could come at it from a different angle and each of you have a point. Uh, because as Livia points out, like just sort of politically as far as um, being hard on teachers or not, it would play out in different ways. Uh, a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle said, like, oh, see, here you go. Uh, these low expectations on these uh, uh, these children of, of lesser income, that's what's causing them to fall behind and maybe even drop out of school later on. Whereas the uh, Albert Schenker, who was with the United Federation of Teachers, said, no, that's it's not the teacher's fault. It's you know, it's poverty itself, and we have too many kids in these classes, and we don't have the right materials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, regardless of where you fall on it, there was still a big push to do away with, um, like, advanced placement classes or right. gifted tracks or even remedial stuff. They were like, just because you think a kid's remedial, do not put them in a remedial class. Put them in, like, a mixed aptitude class, right. and they'll do way better than if you put them in a remedial class. Um, that was a big deal. I don't I guess it wasn't successful because there was still plenty of AP classes and snotty little AP students in the <laughs> 90s when I was in high school. I was just love to shove it in your face. <laughs> oh, I'm in AP history. Did you not take any AP classes? No. I, I took a couple. I took AP history and English. But um, looking back, like, I don't know. I, I can definitely see, like, they were great classes. Mm-hmm. And. I felt like the teachers were better, but it also may have been my own bias because it was AP and also Mm -hmm. like a student that, you know, 
they don't think should have tested into there. If they had been thrown in there, maybe they would have risen to that level. So it's, you know, with with adult eyes, I now look back at kind of how messed up all that stuff was. Well, if it was better teaching from better teachers with better material, then the argument for people who are like against that would say, then all classes should be like that. Every history class should be taught like that. Don't just make it for the ones who you think are gifted or whatever. So um, that was a that I think that still probably is a big deal. I'm not particularly up on um, the state of education today or early childhood education. Yeah. So I don't know if they're still putting kids in classes, different separate classes or not. Um, but if not, I'm sure there's still people arguing against it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure yet as far as upper grades. You know, all my experience right now is with Ruby in the third grade. Mm-hmm. At her little hippy dippy private school, where sure. of course everybody is, uh, you know, treated equally and given the same opportunities. Everyone wins <laughs> or loses. Uh, so one kind of cool thing that came out of this was uh, because there was there was it was so famous, and because there were so many people sort of criticizing it, so many people defending it, mm-hmm. and so many people doing other studies. Because as we'll see, this soon leapt into uh, the private sector with like business into the military. Uh, like people started sort of applying this kind of thing to all kinds of, uh, you know, stuff outside the classroom. Yeah. Um, it led to Rosenthal saying, well, hey, now I can look at like all these studies together. And like, uh, was that the, the literal birth of meta-analysis? Was he one of the first? That's how I took it. Yeah. The, Same. In 1978, okay. he got together with a colleague, Donald Rubin, who was the head of Harvard's statistics or statistics, <laughs> statistical analysis department. Uh-huh. So this guy's like as good as it gets with statistics. Um, and they got together 345 studies that looked at expectancy effects and um, found that there was like there was a, a pronounced effect that was detected in the if you just looked at the, the high quality studies on it. Right. OK, so they're looking at this stuff. Uh, like you pointed out earlier, the people couldn't replicate because there wasn't raw data mm-hmm. and there were psychologists and uh, neuroscience researchers that were pointing this stuff out like, hey, we can't even replicate this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were also people pointing out that um, the, the people that are criticizing it and the people that are defending it, like sometimes they're not even looking at the same data. Right. Yeah. So Rosenthal was like, hey, this, if we're looking at actual student progress based on teacher expectations and you're just looking at gains in IQ testing, yeah, um, that's not looking at the whole picture. Like if you also take into, um, into account scores from year-end achievement tests um, or teacher assessments on, on uh, improvement um, or how many books a kid can walk around with on their head without spilling them over because they have really good posture. If you take uh-huh. all this stuff into account, you get a much clearer picture of whether the student actually did improve or not thanks to teacher expectation. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and, you know, I mentioned they did it outside the classroom. I think they found the biggest gains in military settings. Yeah, which makes uh, sense. Yeah, the idea that, you know, you probably just have more sway as a drill sergeant than you do as a teacher maybe. Yeah, for sure. You have that much more influence in the more influence and control you have over somebody, um, the more effect your expectations can have on them. Yeah, but they definitely, like, they saw this play out. So it's not like we're, this is an episode on how this isn't a thing. Because it is a thing, whether they found it by accident or not. Like, uh, there was one example that Livia found where 
uh, there were employees putting together medical kits and they brought in this group of new hires and told the managers like, hey, these people, they're, they're maze uh, happy. What was it? Maze, maze bright? Um, bright. <laughs> yeah, they're maze bright. Like you ought to see them put together these kits. Like you're going to do great. They've, they've got a lot of potential here. Uh-huh. And that, that group ended up breaking records for production levels. Right. And so if you're in the man- management science, uh-huh. you're teaching everybody this. Like just, just go out and lie to your managers. And the, yeah. the your employees <laughs> will start like actually producing way better than than you would think for for no reason other than their manager has higher expectations, thinks they're better at at their job than other people, and that is a huge huge part of all of this. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be the same effect if you are forthright and honest with the teacher, uh, because the whole thing seems to be rooted in the idea that the teacher or the manager has to genuinely believe that this kid or this student or this uh, employee is is above average and expect above average results from them. Yeah, I say we take another break and we talk, uh, we dive a little bit more into that after this, eh? Sounds good, man. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everybody. Did you know that Boricua is the name for someone from Puerto Rico? But it's more than just a name. It's a way of life and representation of the vibrant spirit of the island. Yeah, that's right. It's an island that's filled with adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the entire United States. That's right. Or you can get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico that remind you of why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island. It becomes a part of you. That's right. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, everyone. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework.
So, Chuck, um, one thing that I think probably everybody listening to this episode so far uh, has come across as a question is, okay, if, if teachers' expectations actually influence student performance, how? What are teachers right. doing that, that can have that effect? And that's been a big thread of, of this study as well. Yeah, because, you know, to put this into, you know, to implement this is kind of the important thing. Sure. It's not just to sit back and say, well, we know all this stuff now, because uh, hopefully the goal is to help kids, you know, learn better. Mm-hmm. So they did put together um, some broad categories over the years of how, uh, if you're a teacher, you might be transmitting positive expectations. Uh, you might not be and not even know it by saying certain things. Uh, and they put together a four-point thing, which after I read it, I was like, oh, my God, why weren't they already doing all this? I know. It's kind of sad. But here it is. Uh, climate, that is giving a warm emotional environment. Uh, input, giving them more and tougher assignments, mm-hmm. these students. Mm-hmm. Uh, output, allowing the students more opportunity to engage with that material. And then the fourth one is give more detailed feedback. Right. So teaching, essentially. Yeah. Like ideally. teaching well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So what they found was that given um, the, that, that idea that some of their students were growth spurters or were going to really, you know, make some crazy good moves this school year, teachers did different um, stuff with that information. Like they didn't all just follow what Rosenthal would have expected, which is they, you know, create these high expectations, a warm learning environment for the, those, those growth spurters or bloomers. Instead, yeah. some of them were like, oh, okay, well, then that kid's good. Let me go focus my attention on um, the, the lower-achieving the students. Yeah, the maze dull <laughs> students. Yeah. You know? And so what was interesting about that, too, because that, that actually is kind of sensible. It's a sensible strategy if you have a finite amount of time and attention to, to give to all your students. Um, they found that in some cases, there was a, a psychologist, Rana Weinstein, who found that when that was done, in some cases, the low-performing students who got more attention actually still did worse than the higher-performing students. Yeah. And she um, hypothesized that that was because those kids were basically being patronized, and even though they're six, they still understand that on some innate level, and so they were still getting signals that their the expectations for them were low. Yeah, or maybe they were already separated out which kind of goes to that whole idea that like putting kids in a group just labeled mm-hmm. and, you know, and a lot of times, you know, they would, I remember my uh, school, even where my father was principal, um, the, you know, the, the, the troubled kids program, and this wasn't necessarily academically, but the behaviorally troubled kids were all put in a special group that had a label. I can't remember. It was an acronym that basically indicated kind of how great they were, which, is, is, you know, it's a good thing. It's like you sh- definitely shouldn't say like call them like these are the bad kids or whatever. <laughs> um, so I think you're they would put labels on them that would hopefully give them an aspirational expectation or something. Right. Or they or they did in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad's whole thing was outdoor programs. He was the first person in the I think in the state, definitely in the county that started all, like all these camping programs. And he really believed that getting kids out in nature mm-hmm. Uh, if they had behavioral problems, could really you could see gains there and stuff like that. Oh, so, neat. yeah, that makes a yeah, lot of sense. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Great, great principle. Uh, yeah, and full stop. <laughs> <laughs> so what you, what your point is is that if you if you are if you separate kids or you even talk about certain kids in certain ways, 
if you even have them separated mentally, it's yeah. going to be transmitted or telegraphed to, to both groups of students as a whole. Sure. And they found that even if they weren't separated, just sort of the language that teachers would use in the class would right. divide them the way they talk to certain kids and, and other kids. Right. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Oh, um, uh, okay. Which is, you know, it's pretty interesting. But again, all of it comes down to this. And I shouldn't say again because I haven't made this point yet. What, what, this is all predicated on the fact that teachers are human beings with, the, with biases, with uh, prejudices, with um, just thoughts that they can't, you know, avoid unconscious ways that you treat or act towards certain kids um, where you favor some over others. And then there was something that stuck out to me because there was a, um, a researcher from New Zealand named Christine Ruby Davies. And I'll bet when she talks, it sounds awesome. Yeah. But she um, has set up a, a project called the Teacher Expectation Project where she's like, hey, remember how you guys said a minute ago that for this to be effective, you have to lie to the teachers, you have to mislead them so that they genuinely believe that the students are gifted? I say nuts to that. I'm going to figure out a way to teach teachers to be high expectance or high expectancy teachers. So that they, for everybody. Right. So that they have those effects on everybody without them, you know, being duped. But one of the things she came up with that to me was like, yes, I think that's 70% of it right there. Teachers don't know all of their students equally well in the classroom. And yeah. if you've ever been one of those students who you your teacher didn't really know you very well and clearly yeah. knew other students better, yep. that is a that is an isolating feeling, and it's yeah. not as easy to learn as it is when you're one of the students that the teacher knows that kid. And so that's one of the things that um, that Christine Ruby Davies uh, teaches, like know all of your kids equally well. It's very important. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was well known by all my teachers because I, I didn't consciously make a point to, but I was the class clown, and I was always involved in trying to crack jokes and being funny. And I may have been disruptive, but the teachers also loved me because it wasn't usually like a like super negative disruption. Mm -hmm. uh, I would just see a good opportunity for a joke and run with it. Uh, but as, you know. <laughs> well, it, plus your dad would have <laughs> fired them if they gave you any back talk, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, well into high school too, you know, but as a long story short, I was well liked by teachers. Right. And so they paid me more attention. Uh, Livy also points out something really important uh, about grouping kids is if you just throw kids in a group of like, you know, maze dull group, um, <laughs> some of these kids may have dyslexia, some may have ADHD, mm -hmm. some may be have insecure housing and family issues and be stressed. Some may uh, be, have limited English fluency. Uh, so you, you're throwing all these different issues in as one group. Right. And uh, of course, that's going to be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's why they say use mixed group, mixed ability groups. That's one of the yeah. things they teach in the teacher expectation project. Um, another thing that was touched on is creating a caring, non-threatening environment yeah. where you just it's a warm environment for all students and you use respectful language. You can't be like, gosh, you're so dumb. You dumb, dumb. You shouldn't say that to students. Right. Yeah. Um, and this is another one, too. Uh, working with students to set their own goals, which a lot of teachers would be like, uh, you can't actually do that. But apparently, um, Ruby Davies' research has shown, or some research out there that Ruby Davies' cites has shown, 
Um, if you allow students to set their own learning goals, they will actually shoot for something that's challenging but doable. They yeah. probably aren't going to be like, well, I'm just going to learn to draw um, uh, Huckleberry Hound this year. That's my right. learning goal, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. they're, they're going to do something a little more challenging than that, and they'll learn along the way, and they will have a sense of, like, agency and a stake in their learning. Like, they'll take it that much more seriously, and they'll know if you plot and chart their learning um, through learning goals and allow them to track it themselves, they will um, they will know when they've learned rather than uh, saw um, having to look to the teacher to be like, yes, you just learned something. Way to go. Yeah. Well, uh, wasn't yours the horse? If I remember correctly, you could draw a, <laughs> yeah. a heck of a horse. <laughs> I, I used to. I, I lost it as I proved no, on, you, on Instagram. No. Everyone should go check that out. I thought it was a, a great drawing of a horse. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, another thing that they said as far as the high expectations uh, teaching from uh, Christine Ruby Davies goes is praising effort rather than accuracy. Mm -hmm. uh, very big deal and working equally with all students. And um, I'm not going to name my daughter's school for obvious reasons, but like they're doing it right. And it's just great to see that happening. Uh, so just big props to uh, her teachers and, and everyone at her school. And and, and this is it's not just her school. It's happening more than when we were kids at more and more schools, but it's still uh, not as much as it should in the same breath, you know? Yeah, that's sad. Um, two more just related effects that have to do with um, the Pygmalion effect, the Gollum effect, which is the opposite. If you have low expectations, it leads to lower performance, which makes sense too. And that Galatea effect named after Pygmalion statue, that what we expect for ourselves um, impacts our performance mostly because um, it, it mediates how the people in authority, a teacher or a manager or something, um, sees us. So the way that they see us impacts how we see ourselves, which impacts how we perform, which impacts how the manager or teacher sees us. And it's just like Ouroboros. That's right. Pretty interesting stuff, man. Good pick, Chuck. I, I think it's so great you just came up with this all by yourself. <laughs> oh, man. I hope I did. I hope you did, too. Well, since we both hope that Chuck came up with this by himself, it's time, of course, for a listener mail. Uh, hey, guys. I live in Rhode Island, where I run Charter Books, an independent bookstore uh, opened in the spring of 2021. Nice. We report to the New York Times bestseller list. Nice. And I can confirm that you guys really nailed uh, just about everything about it, and I thought you might like a few more tidbits. Yes, please. Uh, every week, we export a CSV document from our bookstore point-of-sale software, Upload it to the bestseller list portal, and as mighty as they are, it's still amusing to see that it's basically uh, just comes down to us emailing them a spreadsheet, uh, along with all the other booksellers, of course. Uh, if we haven't done it by 11 a.m. on Monday, they send a gentle reminder. If we inadvertently miss a week, uh, because they require that you report all 52 weeks, uh, they send a message about how much they value our input and how disappointed they are that we forgot. Oh, wow. <laughs> A little passive aggressive. Yeah. Uh, and then every week they also send an email asking about any bulk orders, uh, which you explained very well in the episode. Uh, you are correct in implying how powerful it can be. Uh, the list that is authors, publishers, publicists, and other entities in the industry frequently ask if we report to the Times. Mm -hmm. And years ago, when I was with another bookstore, we received a weird order for 20 copies of a random YA fantasy book. Mm -hmm. Turned out to be a bungled effort by an obscure publisher to do some book laundering, as Chuck uh, would say. Wow. So hours after we took the order, we received a sternly worded, 
a message from the New York Times that they wanted documentation of all orders, basically asking for our receipts. Uh, none of this is earth-shattering to you guys, probably, but it was fun to hear you talk about my day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is Steve from Charter Books. So, hey, if you're near Charter Books in Rhode Island, support your indie bookstore. Yeah, no matter where you live, support your indie bookstore, friends. For sure. Uh, that was Steve, right? Yeah, and he sent a little picture. They had our book uh, on display. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. We love it when people round out information that we've talked about. Um, and if you want to be like Steve and do something like that, you can do it via email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Childproofing people's homes is hard, but Duracell is making it just a bit simpler. Not only are they committed to educating parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of battery safety, they make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Duracell even features child secure packaging designed to avoid accidental opening. Learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.